welcome to all of you here this morning, and welcome if you're watching online, as Pastor Corey said. I know uh, summer's often a time when we have lots of visitors here, so welcome if you are a visitor. If you're visiting family, on vacation, uh, or maybe you are new and you're just checking out our church for the first time, we are glad that you are here. My name is Ben Fredrickson. Um, I serve as the Young Adults and Care Ministries pastor here at our church, and I love getting to do both of those things. I hope you've been having a good summer so far. Um, my highlight of the summer so far was going to visit my wife's family in Sudbury, Ontario. Anyone know Sudbury, Ontario? Yeah, a couple people? Okay. Have you actually been there? Yeah, yes, okay, good, awesome. So Sudbury, Ontario, lots of lakes. Um, and the, my favorite thing, honestly, was just watching my girls play on the little beach um, at our family's cabin there. It's a, a very tiny beach, but they are entirely content all day building sandcastles and playing in the water there. So that was my highlight for the summer. Uh, one of the things people always ask me when, when I tell them I've been to Northern Ontario for the summer vacation, they're like, oh, how were the bugs? They, they were terrible, right? Friends, the bugs in Langley are worse. I'm telling you, the mosquitoes are worse this year than Sudbury, Ontario. Well, I hope you've been having a good summer, and if you've been uh, in our church here at North Langley, you'll know that we've been in a sermon series on the book of Luke. And, and we're exploring how, how Luke presents the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And Luke's gospel shows how God has a plan of salvation for all people and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. In, in Luke's gospel, we, we see all kinds of people, unexpected outsider people, encountering Jesus and entering into the kingdom of God. People with labels like sinner or prostitute or tax collector Samaritan, Gentile, the poor. And, and then on the, on the flip side, the, the religious insiders, the ones who thought they were special and chosen, these are the very people who reject Jesus. And they're the people he criticizes most harshly. Our, our passage today from Luke 11, it shows a confrontation between Jesus and some of these religious leaders. It's not pretty. Jesus insults them, he accuses them of murder, and he blames them for misleading people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Yikes! Guys, this, this is heavy stuff. What do we make of this story? How is it relevant for us today? Well, we're going to dive in and listen to the passage first, starting with verse 37. And uh, Ashlyn and Anna Joy are going to come back up and, and help us hear that word. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? But now as for you, what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, 
and you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and, they build, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Jesus went outside. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Thank you, Anna Joy and Ashlyn. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer as we start here? Father, we thank you for sending us your word. Uh, we thank you for giving us this word today. We pray that you would help us to understand it, uh, but more than understand it, Lord, to, to let it transform and shape us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so to help us understand what's going on in this tricky passage, I'm going to do three main things. First, we're going to unpack why Jesus calls out the religious leaders for their failed spiritual leadership. Secondly, we're going to see how Jesus embodies a different kind of leadership. And third, and finally, we're going to see how apprenticeship to Jesus is the way, the antidote to bad leadership. And, and while this passage focuses on leaders, um, it, it might be tempting just to kind of tune out now and feel like, oh, I'm not a leader, this isn't for me. But it, it's really for all of us. All of us have influence over others in some sphere of our lives, right? Could be your family, could be your workplace. And I think all of us are prone to the pitfalls of legalism, of hypocrisy, of pride, of spiritual blindness. The only way that any one of us can avoid them is to encounter the living Jesus and to be lifelong apprentices of Jesus. Uh, if you were here with us last week, you'll recall that Pastor Corey preached on the first part of this passage, verses 37 to 44. And Corey did a great job of contrasting that prideful, egocentric leadership of the Pharisees with the Jesus way of leadership that he characterized as humble, outward-focused, and genuine. Today, we're looking at part two of the same encounter. You can start following along at verse 45, if you like, in your Bibles. Okay, remember, this is happening in the context of a dinner gathering. Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee, and along with a lot of other religious leaders, the spiritual elite of the day. My guess is that the host is, at this point, seriously regretting inviting Jesus, right? Imagine inviting someone to your home, offering them a nice dinner, having all your friends there, and they get up and they just launch into all the things they're going to criticize you about. Yikes! My guess is Jesus is not getting dessert today. Well, he calls out the Pharisees first for their, their failed leadership. And then one of the experts in the law stands up and says, teacher, when, when, you, when you're saying these things, you're, you're insulting us also. Well, who are these experts in the law, as the NIV calls them? 
Other translations say teachers in the law, religious experts, or even lawyers. Uh, but the law that they were experts in was the Torah, God's law that's found in the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. But, but they were also experts in all the later additions and interpretations of that law that had been built up over the centuries. And, and their goal was to interpret that tradition and to help people apply it in their daily life. We might think of pastors or seminary professors or Christian authors who help us do that today. Well, Jesus doesn't miss a beat as this expert in the law protests. He jumps right back in with three more woes directed specifically at them. You experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Well, first, a note on the word woe. It's not a word that we use very much in everyday language anymore, right? Um, we, we might make a joke, for example, and say, oh, my car broke down on the way to work. Woe is me. Well, Jesus uses it six times in this encounter. And, and woe here, it captures kind of two things. It's both lament and warning. There's sorrow for the way in which they have failed in their spiritual leadership. And there's also a warning for the consequences of what will happen if they don't change their ways. It, you see, implied in these woes is actually a call to repentance, to change. When Jesus expresses these woes, he's, it's because he's distressed at what he sees in Israel's leaders, and he's challenging them to change. I'm calling this first woe the woe of legalism and hypocrisy. You see, like the Pharisees, the experts in the law, they had built up all these additional rules beyond what the original law of God prescribed for Israel. Those could be everything from ritual hand-washing to what you could and couldn't eat to what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, for example. The goal, of course, of, of these extra rules was to protect God's law. It was, as they put it, to put a hedge around God's law so that if you broke, you know, if you kept all the minor laws, you definitely wouldn't be in any danger of breaking the central law at the heart of it. But, but the problem was that it created heavier and heavier moral and practical burdens for people to carry. Okay, it's summertime, camping season here in BC, right? Here's a little image to help you maybe understand this. Okay, picture yourself at your campsite. Um, you're, you're, you're gonna build a campfire, it's time to make s'mores. And so you're gathering firewood, and, and you're starting to pile them up in your arms, right? You've, you've got your arms kind of full like this, and you're carrying it over to your fireplace, and, and people just, like other people around you, just keep loading more logs on your arms. You're like, okay, here's another log, here's another log, uh, until you're, you're sort of like stumbling under these logs, and eventually you, you drop them, right? Or maybe you fall under the weight of all of them as you're trying to carry them. Well, when the people failed to keep all of these laws, as they inevitably did, there was no help. There was no grace from the experts in the law. They weren't helping to carry the logs or to pick them up when you dropped them. Uh, the, the experts in the law, I, I'm comparing them to like the really unhelpful friends. Maybe you've got someone like this in your life. They sit around in their comfy chair uh, with their drink and they give you all kinds of good advice about how to light that fire, but they don't lift a hand themselves. Hey, have you ever felt this way though in terms of trying to keep rules and keep up? Maybe you've been trying really hard to live up to a set of moral rules, but you, you just can't seem to succeed. You, you keep failing. You keep slipping up and falling. Maybe you've gotten to a point where you really don't want to keep trying at all anymore. 
Or maybe you grew up in an environment where your worth and your value were always measured by how well you kept the rules. And it's left you with this nagging sense of, of never quite measuring up. Well, the name for this kind of mentality and system, of course, is legalism. It's a particular danger for those of us like me who maybe have a more conservative theological bent. Um, the equal but opposite danger would be antinomianism. That's just a belief that all rules and laws are just bad. Um, we'll save that sermon for another time. Uh, but the basic mentality of, of any legalism, whether Christian or not, is that if you can just keep all the rules, you're good. You're considered righteous. You're in. You're going to heaven or whatever the goal is. And, and legalism doesn't necessarily have to be religious either. Uh, maybe you have met a climate change legalist. They make sure to offset any of their air travel with carbon credit purchases. They insist on driving only in electric cars, and they would never set foot at a McDonald's, right? Definitely not eat a Big Mac. Anyone met a climate change legalist? Yeah, that's okay. I'm being facetious here, of course, uh, but, but the point is all of us can be prone to legalism, to creating a set of rules to determine who's righteous and who's definitely not. Here's a quick, a quick checklist uh, to see if you, too, might be a legalist. Check this out. You refuse to speak directly to the people you criticize or disapprove of. You major in minor issues and you ignore relational commitments. You're not good at listening to others and their perspective. You're quick to criticize, but slow to help. Anyone resonating with these? It's okay, you don't have to put up your hands. We trust you. Uh, but, but looking at this checklist, we might all recognize our own inner legalist, right? Uh, if you don't think you have a problem at all, just, just ask a few people around you who know you. Well, the, the problem with these experts in the law, and with all strict legalists, of course, is that there's no compassion for those who are weighed down, for those who are burdened trying to keep the rules. There's, there's no grace. There's no heart. There's no relational element. Many of you will know the Christian author Philip Yancey. Maybe you've read some of his books, like What's So Amazing About Grace. This past year, I got to read his memoir, which is called Where the Light Fell. And in this book, he tells about his upbringing in a very strict, legalistic family and church in the southern U.S. And it shows just how destructive this kind of narrow, rules-based legalism can be. Yancey writes that as a child, quote, we don't cuss or go to movies. We know no music written in the past 50 years. We own no television. We spend much of our time doing church activities. And on Sundays, we aren't allowed to swim, fish, or play ball. I don't mind most of these rules. In fact, I feel set apart, dedicated, even morally superior. We have the truth, after all, unlike most of our other friends. At what point has church taught that you could attain such a degree of holiness that you would never sin anymore? And his mother is, is a single mom. She's a respected Sunday school teacher who's looked up to by the other church members for her piety, her ability to teach God's word. And yet, at home, she's verbally, emotionally, and even physically abusive to her two boys, Philip and his brother Marshall. In, in high school, Marshall and his mom engage in these almost daily angry screaming matches. And Yancey writes, we can't put together the two people who are our mother, the angelic one that everyone else sees, and the volatile one that we live with. You see, her legalism, her set of rules, had masked a dangerous hypocrisy in the way she treats those closest to her. 
Once the brothers leave for college, you know, Philip eventually comes to experience the freedom of God's amazing grace, being forgiven for his sins. But sadly, his brother Marshall can't escape just the toxic effects of that upbringing. Religion and God have become so tainted that he wants nothing to do with Jesus anymore. It's a tragic ending for Marshall, and I think it reveals that dark shadow side of the kind of strict legalism and hypocrisy that we're talking about here. When Jesus announces this first woe on the experts in the law, I think he's warning them against that kind of destructive hypocrisy, religion that lacks compassion, that lacks room for grace. Friends, this is not the way of Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see instead a leader who is willing to bear our burdens. Isaiah 53, we read of the suffering servant of God, the promised Messiah. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Jesus is that suffering servant who takes up our sin, our afflictions, our suffering, our grief, our failures. He, he, he takes them all and he, he carries them on his own back to the cross to deal with them. Jesus doesn't pile more burdens on already tired backs. He helps us carry the things that we can't on our own. Jesus is the true leader who shows his compassion and his grace. One of my favorite Bible passages is Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Listen to Jesus' gracious invitation to all of us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you, do you see that contrast with the experts in the law? They were loading down people with burdens they couldn't and wouldn't help to lift. Jesus promises rest for the weary. And, and more than that, he, he offers himself, his gentle, humble heart that loves to welcome the sinner, as we sang, the broken, the downtrodden, the weary. Jesus says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Well, what does that mean? Yoke in this context is, is a metaphor for apprenticeship, a way of life following a master and his teaching. You see, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they offered a yoke that weighed people down. Jesus offers a yoke that is light because he helps us carry it. Don't, don't get me wrong here. Following Jesus is not always easy, right? If you've been following Jesus long enough, you'll know this. It doesn't mean your life will be easy. But it's a yoke that frees us from the bondage of, of legalism, of self-righteousness, of having to measure up to impossible standards. It's rooted firmly in Jesus' love and his grace for you. I wonder, North Langley, what, what are the burdens that you feel weighed down by? What are the things that you just wish you could, you could just give to Jesus to have him carry? Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a son or daughter who has walked away from faith in the church and you just long for them to come home. Maybe it's an addiction, a secret sin that you want to confess and be free of. Listen to Jesus' gracious invitation. Listen again to his heart for you. I invite you, if you feel comfortable, just to close your eyes for a moment. Uh, I bring these things to him as I read these words again. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Friends, if, if that's you, um, I invite you to, to, to head to the prayer room to be prayed for at some point today. You can leave right now if you need to, or you can wait till the end of the service um, to our prayer room back there, or, or connect with someone else to pray about those things. Maybe you're someone who has been hurt by failed leadership in the church or elsewhere, uh, and, and you feel wounded by that. I invite you to come as well and, and just to be prayed for, to offer up that pain that you still carry. We could end our sermon here, but Jesus isn't done with the experts in the law yet. Here we go. Woe number two. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors that killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. I'm calling this second woe the woe of pride and spiritual blindness. What's this warning about? Well, the religious leaders, they were making a big show of, of building like bigger and bigger tombs and monuments for the prophets that God had sent to speak to Israel in the past. Um, this could have been prophets that we're familiar with, like Isaiah or Micah, um, but perhaps there were other prophetic figures that they were honoring. And, and ostensibly, they were honoring them and their memories. And yet Jesus accuses them of being accomplices in their deaths. He said, it was your ancestors that killed them, and you show your approval. This seems confusing. What's going on? Well, if, if you know the story of Israel and the history of Israel at all, you'll know that when God sent the prophets to warn his people, they weren't always very well received, especially by the people who were in power. Think of the prophet Elijah, for example. He was hunted down by Queen Jezebel, King Ahab, who wanted to kill him. The prophet Jeremiah, uh, he was beaten several times. He was put into prison. He was thrown into a muddy cistern and left to rot and die. Over and over, when God's word of warning came to his people, they rejected both the message and the messenger. And when they rejected God's message, they faced the consequences of what God had warned them of, conquering, being conquered by foreign armies, being exiled to Babylon. And now, here comes Jesus. Not just a message or a messenger from God, but, but God's word itself, God in the flesh, and yet the religious leaders, they, they don't get it. They refuse to accept Jesus and his message. John 1.11 says, He came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not receive him. They, they, they had become so blind, they can't see what's standing right in front of them. And they're repeating that pattern of their ancestors, of rejecting God's word. From Abel, who is the first innocent victim of murder that we read about in Genesis, to Zechariah, who was a priest who was killed for calling the people to repentance. For, from, from A all the way to Z, we could say, Israel has rejected God's message and messengers. So when Jesus criticizes them, he's saying in essence, as one commentator puts it, you love only dead prophets, not living ones. And now when Jesus says, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, um, it might sound like a bit dramatic, right? Just a little bit over the top. But his point here is deadly serious. Because by rejecting Jesus, they are, they are turning their backs on God. They're following in the footsteps of their ancestors. And of course, that is exactly what the religious authorities end up doing. They become so hate-filled towards Jesus 
that they're willing to turn him over to Rome to be crucified. They've become so blinded by their desire to hold on to power and authority at any cost. Well, again, it's tempting to see this as a warning that's just for the Pharisees or religious leaders back then. Surely we would never become so blinded, right? But, But I think the temptation to put our own agenda, our own authority and ego ahead of God and his way is a universal human tendency. We're all prone to it. And Jesus highlights a crucial choice for us in this warning. He says, will you reject me? Will you harden your heart against me and my truth? Or will you begin to submit to my leadership in your life? Allow my truth to shape you. Last week, Pastor Corey mentioned the the cautionary tale of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Uh, An example of failed spiritual leadership with devastating results for many, many people. I've been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is a, a fascinating telling of this story. One of the things that that stood out to me is just how much power and authority was invested in one person, Mark Driscoll, the the founder and lead pastor of this church. He made all the important decisions. Um, There was ultimately no one he was accountable to. It was all about him, his ego, his fame, his way of doing things. He was willing to run over anyone to get what he wanted. At one point, Driscoll graphically describes his vision of leadership saying, I'm driving this bus, and I don't care how big the pile of bodies is behind me. Wow. This is a pattern that often happens in churches or other organizations with charismatic, visionary leaders who aren't willing to to give up their power, their authority, or submit to accountability. Uh, The priest and spiritual writer Henry Nouwen wrote an excellent book on leadership called In the Name of Jesus. In it, he laments, Quote, that one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to that temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. Friends, you see, in in contrast to spiritual pride and ego-driven leadership, listen instead to what Jesus says to his followers. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become their servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, as we become apprentices of Jesus, we learn to lead like Jesus. And we recognize that leadership, true greatness, don't come from lording it over people, but instead serving them. Jesus, the creator, the Lord of the universe, came as a servant of all. In John 13, we read that on the night he was betrayed, he showed his love for his disciples. The teacher, the master, got up from the meal He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. And and he began to wash his disciples' feet, kneeling before them, and then drying their feet with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. That's the kind of leader that we follow if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. True leadership is going to be formed by apprenticeship to Jesus, 
following his example, serving others, taking up burdens for others. So far, we've looked at two woes, two ways in which the teachers of the law failed, adding extra burdens through legalistic rules and rejecting God's message in order to hold on to power. We're going to look at the third and final warning here now in verse 52. Uh, And I'm, I'm calling this woe, these are just arbitrary titles, by the way, I'm calling this woe, Missing Jesus and Misleading Others. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered in, and you have hindered those who were entering. Wow. Remember that the experts in the law were the people who were supposed to be interpreting the law correctly for people, helping them to walk not only in obedience, but in right relationship with God. But instead, they they had taken away that key to knowledge, which is the right interpretation of Scripture. One commentator puts it this way, the law that was intended to lead one to God had instead become an obstacle course. There's a double failure in this woe, right? The law experts had missed the point themselves and had not entered into the kingdom, but they had also misled and kept others from entering in. Their interpretation of the law missed the fundamental principles of it, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They missed that relational connection to God, which was always at the heart of the law. And they missed out on the most important thing of all, the focal point of scripture, which is Jesus himself. On another occasion, Jesus warned the Pharisees. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Well, in our time, I think this failure can take on different forms. Uh, It could be the religious legalism, the moralism that we talked about earlier, adding ever more rules to follow. No dancing, no smoking, no playing cards, but missing out on grace and forgiveness. It could be getting so bogged down in doctrinal disputes, right? that we forget to love our neighbor, or care for the poor, or treat our fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. It it might look like watering down the gospel and promoting a false religion of health and wealth, that God just wants you to be happy. Uh, For some of us, it might mean amassing more and more knowledge about God and the Bible through books, through podcasts, even a seminary education, but missing out on actually relating to God of enjoying his presence in prayer and worship, of sharing life with others. Um, That that last danger is one that I know that I am prone to. It's it's easy for me to live in my head, um, to just keep studying theology, to get book smart, even to become arrogant in that knowledge. And so when I read this this warning of Jesus to the spiritual leaders of his day, uh, it it makes me nervous, because I see in it a warning for me also. As someone called to be a pastor, to lead others, I I want to be so careful never to lead people astray, not to add extra burdens to them that I'm not going to help them carry. I I don't ever want to become the reason that people, that keep people from knowing Jesus. And I I don't want to miss out on Jesus as being the very heart of what being a Christian is all about. Um, As many of you know, I'm I'm also the the father of two beautiful daughters, and I've heard that one of the biggest reasons why pastor's kids, in particular, turn away from faith is when they see hypocrisy in their parents' lives. It's probably true for all parents and kids, actually. 
Um, friends, that is something that makes me want to hold on to Jesus and, and do my best to live with integrity, with his grace. Well, so far we've looked at the different ways in which these spiritual experts failed in their leadership, their legalism, their hypocrisy, their pride, their blindness, missing out on Jesus, misleading others. We, we, we've seen at least a little hint of how Jesus embodies a different kind of leadership, the true leader who carries our burdens on his own back, whose heart is always open to sinners and sufferers. He's the servant leader who's, who's washing his disciples' feet. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So what's, what's the antidote to bad leadership, right? If these are all the ways in which leaders have failed, how do we avoid these pitfalls of legalism, of pride? How can we become the kind of people who draw people to Jesus and his kingdom and don't hinder them from coming in? How can we use whatever influence, whatever responsibility we have in our lives to, to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves? Well, I think the answer is, is actually quite simple. It's an encounter with the living Jesus, and it's ongoing apprenticeship to Jesus and his way of leadership. It starts with an encounter. Think of the Apostle Paul. Once he too had been a Pharisee, zealous for protecting the law, defending it at all costs, persecuting Christians. He, he was on the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians there when Jesus appears to him, and he's changed forever. From, from that point on, Paul dedicated his life to taking the good news of Jesus, the liberating gospel of Jesus, to the whole Roman world. Friends, if, if God can transform Paul and his spiritual blindness, surely he can change us too. If you haven't encountered Jesus or his life-changing power yet, can I encourage you to pray, um, just to ask God to, to open your heart to him. Maybe you're still checking things out. You're not really sure about who this Jesus guy is. Um, I'd love to chat more with you or encourage you to connect with a friend who can help you learn more about him. What, whatever our initial encounter with Jesus looks like, uh, that might have been years ago for some of us, and spoiler alert here, for most of us, it's probably not going to be a blinding light and a voice from heaven like it was for Paul. All of us are called to an ongoing apprenticeship, though, to Jesus, to learn from him, to be led by him, and to lead more like him in every area of our lives. Apprenticeship isn't flashy or complicated. It's the things that we do and that we talk about here week in, week out. It's not always immediately rewarding or exciting. It's just the daily, the weekly rhythms of spending time in conversation with God in prayer, reading his word, discovering Jesus in the Bible, of gathering with brothers and sisters to pray for one another, to sing, to share life like we're doing here this morning of giving generously to those who are in need and of learning to confess our sins, to admit when we're wrong, to ask for forgiveness. In that podcast I mentioned earlier, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, a recent episode featured a conversation between um, the host and Pastor Tim Keller, who's the pastor of a church in New York um, called Redeemer Church. Tim Keller is also a pastor and a, an author who has had lots of success as a church planter. Um, but to put it mildly, with a very different approach to Mark Driscoll. He's someone I respect immensely. And as he was talking with a host about how to avoid the kinds of dangers that ensnared Driscoll, that, that pride and the abuse of authority, he highlighted 
three pretty basic things. Disciplines, character, and accountability. Pretty simple. Disciplines, there, there are those basic practices of the Christian faith that I just mentioned that we're all practicing and growing in. We're not going to master them. We keep practicing them. Character simply means that we act with integrity, that we're the same person on stage where everyone can see us as we are behind the scenes when the spotlight is not on us. And finally, accountability. Do you have someone in your life who can call you out on things? Are there people who know you well enough, who see every aspect of your life, and that you are willing to listen to when they call you, when they see you going off track? Um, that could be a spouse, it could be a mentor, it could be an apprentice group that you're a part of. But, but how do you respond when you are criticized, when people do point out your flaws? Are, are you willing to listen and to change? Or are you stuck in your ways, unable to see a different perspective? Um, these things are, of course, are especially vital for leaders, but, but they're important for every one of us. Spiritual disciplines, growing in Christ-like character, submitting to accountability, all with God's transforming grace at work in our lives. In a time where Christianity and the church are too often in the news for good leaders, who abuse their authority, and Corey gave us a list of them last week, I want to close with two examples of good leadership, people who follow the way of Jesus. One, one is a personal example. Last time I preached, uh, which was in December last year, I, I shared about my friend and mentor, Don Lewis. Don Lewis was a professor at Regent College in Vancouver, where I attended, and he died suddenly of a heart attack last October. It was a huge loss to his family, to Regent, where he had taught for 40 years, and to the many students that he'd mentored. Well, at his funeral, uh, one of his former students and mentee shared uh, a eulogy about Don. Uh, and he, he shared how he was on the phone with another student after Don's death, who said, Cameron, it, it, it's all coming out. Everything's coming into the light. People are buzzing. It's a scandal. All the people Don has helped, all the people he's mentored. You see, in an age of disgraced leaders and abuse scandals, Don's legacy was a legacy, a scandal of goodness, of serving others humbly, praying with people, listening to wounded pastors share their stories. It wasn't flashy, it wasn't fancy, but it always pointed people to Jesus. Friends, we need more scandals of goodness in the church. The second example is someone more well-known. Uh, you might have heard of him. That's Nicky Gumbel. He started the Alpha program at his church in London over 30 years ago. Uh, we've run Alpha at this church for a number of years as well. And I know some of you sitting here today uh, probably have come to know Jesus through Alpha. With the success of Alpha and of his church, Holy Trinity Brompton, uh, Nicky Gumbel could have lots of reasons uh, for ego and for pride. But that's not the kind of leader that he is. He recently retired as the vicar, uh, that's Anglican for lead pastor at HTB, and, and one of his colleagues shared this tribute about Nicky and his faithfulness to Jesus. He writes, the simple facts of Nicky Gumbel's long obedience in the same direction are remarkable. 48 years following Jesus since turning from atheism, 44 years married to Pippa, raising two sons, a daughter, and a throng of grandchildren, 36 years in ministry in one single church, first as an associate pastor and then as its vicar. 
32 years quietly running his own Alpha small group every week. Can you imagine? The founder of Alpha, the guy who's on the videos, is the guy who's leading your Alpha small group. 30 years reading the scriptures daily, working through the entire Bible every year. And 30 years at that church of never missing one of their regular Tuesday morning Bible prayer times, uh, sorry, prayer times, even when he had plenty of other really important things to do. Friends, it's the kind of leadership that can often go unnoticed, but it makes a huge impact for Jesus and for his kingdom. Um, let's face it, none of us are probably ever going to have the influence of Nicky Gumbel, uh, of course, but whatever our title our role, our sphere of influence. We're called to be apprentices of Jesus. Jesus, the true leader, the suffering servant who bears our sins and our burdens, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Uh, we thank you for coming to not only be God's word to us, but to be God himself to us, so that we might see in you the example of a true human, a true leader whom we can follow. God, give us your grace uh, that we might be transformed by it to become more like Jesus in every area of our lives. We need you. Uh, we depend on you for that. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, and our true leader. Amen.